Grandma Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, showerheads and the cold moon. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Tom Djokovic, who will talk about solar energy. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Actually, much better from last week. Oh, really? What was going on last week? Bronchitis. How did you get that? Bronchitis is usually a bacterial or a viral thing, so it usually clears up after a week or two. But apparently, my lungs are rated as being 54 years old. It's still improving since last week, which was 60-something, so a couple weeks, I'll be about down to 33, we'll see. <laughs> kind of like Benjamin Button, you're aging backwards, or at least you're... <laughs> My lungs are. <laughs> Maybe your lungs are actually going backwards in time, and you're catching up with them. Oh, man, that could be like a great Star Trek episode. You should ask them the next time what's in the future. Maybe I'm breathing uh-huh. air out from the future. Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear about your lungs, but maybe your brain can achieve that age and, of course, be much wiser as well. I seem to forget more and more, but there's not really that much I really want to remember, so... Well, that's the beauty of age. You sort of forget <laughs> the things that you don't want to remember. Relive it again, I guess, if you want to. <laughs> so, what's going on in science this week? Well, fortunately, I'm back on the mailing list, everybody's favorite journal. Oh, I don't know what I would do without this journal. It's basically my raison d'etre. Aren't you going to get onto it one of these days? That is my goal. And uh, so maybe we could do the daily PNAS update. Actually, we shouldn't. Uh, I don't want to <laughs> jinx it. but Actually, there's a pretty interesting article, and it was widely reported because it seems to have a pretty strong significance for people in the developed world. Showerheads could be responsible for a lot of lung infections. Really? Why is that? A lot of these heads you have a little bit of water left after you finish showering and those are actually excellent places for bacteria to grow since it's dark and moist. Ah, so a lot of these mold spores can be uh, aerated into the environment from the shower head. Right. Basically forms a biofilm and those are very difficult to get rid of. Even if you wash it up, there's going to be a little remains and it regrows back very, very quickly. So unless you, I don't bleach it or put alcohol each time, then the spiofilm just grows back very, very quickly within, you know, a day. And so what they've observed is that people who get in the shower immediately after not being used for a day have a higher tendency to develop lung infections because the moment that you turn on the water, it forms these micro droplets that contain some of these bacteria or mold. And since they're microparticles, easily breathe deep into your lungs. Okay, comes lodged and where it can grow and breed happily. Right. So the advice here is that before you get in the shower, just let the water flow for a few seconds before you actually get in or and avoid a mist. Time to clear out all the uh, grown biofilms for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's still going to be there, but it's going to be you know, that initial blast of water is the one where you're going to get the worst effects. So more people and developers are using showers. They think this is one reason why we're seeing more lung infections, even though we should be living in cleaner environments. 
I wonder if this is in any way related to your bronchitis. There's usually several factors behind your illness, and being exposed to bacteria from the air does not help. All right, well, uh, very cool. Make sure your shower heads are cleared out if uh, people want to know more about that. Check it out in our very favorite journal. Oh, this is my favorite journal of all time. The Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Yes. All right, Frank, well, another way of avoiding those lung infections is perhaps to go to the spot in the solar system. The coldest spot in the solar system? So is that like Pluto? or? Well, oddly enough, no. It turns out that that distinction now uh, belongs to some of the permanently shadowed craters that are near the moon's south pole. Just because there's absolutely no rays and light reaching there? It turns out that the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, measures in at just 33 degrees above absolute zero. Cool. So, do they think they can do some really cool experiments over there? (laughs) Some really cold experiments. (laughs) But actually, there's sort of a practical issue is that these regions might have hints of water ice, which actually might be useful if they were ever to try and establish a colony on the moon, try and mine these regions for water. Right. This was done by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft and announced just recently at a NASA press conference. Cool. Charles, do you like flamingos? Love flamingos. They're so pink and tasty. Deep fried. Even better. (laughs) What, not barbecued? Somehow I sense that this is leading up to the animal fact of the week. Ah, indeed it is. So, the question is, why do all the flamingos we see stand on one feet? Ooh, that's a very good question. Uh, Why is that? Well, it turns out standing on one feet helps to maintain their body temperature. So, whatever they're standing in, usually water, has a tendency to draw heat away from the body. And in order to help them conserve that heat, it's easier if they just stand on one feet. Ah, okay. There's been other conjectures. For example, maybe it helps them ease their exhaustion because they can trade off on one feet. But what they've actually observed is that in really warm weather, many flamingos would actually stand on two feet. So it, it seems that hypothesis or that observation supports the notion that thermoregulation is the uh, factor behind them standing on one feet. Well, that's a very cool fact. And uh, so thermoregulation, why flamingos stand on one feet. Okay. The animal fact of the week. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Tom Djokovic will join us to discuss solar energy. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, the rapid expansion and development of alternative energy sources has begun to cause states to expand their net metering policies. One of the prime technologies driving this trend is solar energy. But how are advances in solar energy technology driving this trend? Joining us today to discuss some of these issues is Mr. Tom Djokovic. Mr. Djokovic is the chief executive officer of Exxon X, a California-based solar cell developer, and he joins us today to discuss the solar cell technology and net metering policies. Mr. Djokovic, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating issue, but I'm curious, maybe a lot of people aren't really aware, what is net metering? 
Well, net metering is where not all states have this, but it's being adopted more rapidly in, in various regions. And that's where essentially you can install a solar system on your home or your uh, commercial building or your <laughs> the roof of your farmhouse, for that matter, you know, in, in your cow pasture. And you tie it into your existing electrical meter where, where uh, power is distributed into your home or your commercial building from the utility grid. And uh, what they allow you to do is essentially... Um, any excess power that you don't use at your home or your commercial building can be fed back into the power grid and they actually makes your meter turn the opposite direction and the utility pays you for that power. Wow, so you actually get a credit for generating power at your own location. Absolutely. Just like our current electrical infrastructure grid really was a heavily subsidized infrastructure dating back well over 100 years. And, you know, we're, we're, we're the benefactors or beneficiaries of a tremendous amount of investment and effort and that went into building the grid that we rely on now. Now, as we start to move to a new kind of, of power production, one that's based on renewable sources, electricity concept, using solar energy of, uh, you know, converting light from the sun to electricity uh, really mandates that you install solar as is in as many places as possible because the sun shines everywhere. And uh, so utilizing this net metering policy, it, it kind of helps promote companies and individuals to go ahead and install systems because they feel that A, they're helping the environment, B, they're reducing their operating costs of their facilities, and C, they have an opportunity to actually generate some income from it. And, and that's what helps drive down the perceived cost or the barriers to entry to, you know, for adoption. And that's an important thing. You, know, you have to, to tear down those barriers, remove resistance to adoption, and and make it easier for people to, uh, to, to switch to this alternate clean source of energy. And, and how effective have these uh, policies been thus far? Well, they, they were starting to kick in quite well uh, up through, I'd say, the early part of 2008. And then, obviously, with the downturn in the credit markets and in the residential and, and even the commercial sectors, uh, there was a tremendous loss of capital that was necessary to finance because at some point someone still has to pay for, for the solar panels, the installation and uh, process. And with a loss of access to available credit facilities, obviously there was a slowdown. The other thing that started to hinder the more rapid deployment was a reduction or a lack of Congress to pass their 30% tax credit that was available. It was, it was due to sunset or expire at the end of 2008. And most lenders became reluctant. Uh, most finance groups became reluctant already many, many months, uh, as, as much as a year in advance of, of the termination of that provision of, of that rule, uh, became reluctant to finance projects. As many of these projects required that 30% tax credit to be in effect for at least three to five years before they could realize the full benefit of those tax credits. So they became reluctant to finance projects, and not knowing if, if Congress was going to extend those credits. Fortunately, Congress did extend the, the credits in their October 2008 session, and they expanded them, allowed utilities to start using uh, those credits and other entities that previously weren't enabled to be able to, uh, to leverage those tax credits. But at the same time, we're all aware of the, of the continued crumbling of the credit markets by last fall and, and this spring, which really uh, affected increased wide-scale adoption. But now we're starting to see a rebound. Things are starting to come back. So these policies should get helping installations and, you know, more rapid deployment occur. And, of course, uh, it seems like solar panels are the prime technology that most people are adopting. 
Yeah, I mean, there's many wind turbines that, that work in, in a number of locations. As a matter of fact, you could put one on your home. The beauty, though, of wind and solar, we're specifically in the solar sector, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the sun shines everywhere. It's very predictable. So predictable that, you know, you can go to the uh, Department of Energy and you can find graphs and charts there that can uh, well, statistically predict how much solar radiation you're going to get in any one particular location of the planet at any time on a 365-day basis. Wind, unfortunately, isn't that predictable. But obviously, the deployment of solar is something that is very predictable, and, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a complementary technology. You, you asked me earlier, you know, what's net metering? Well, net metering is connecting a solar energy device, you know, an alternate clean energy producing device to your existing electrical utility panel. Well, there you have a complementary uh, integration of technologies. Conventional coal-fired electrical production is now working in conjunction with clean energy production. So it's, it's very complementary technology, works with a number of other technologies, and so we believe it's going to have the, the widest adoption here of all renewable technologies. And uh, what type of solar energy technologies are currently uh, available in the market? Well, the, the market really has grown primarily uh, for, for a number of years with a technology based on silicon, which you find silicon in your computers, in the memory chips, uh, in many, many, many facets of our life. Uh, and it was also deployed in the use of solar energy, and it still is, uh, well in excess of 80% or approximately 80% of the current market, uh, or eight out of every 10 solar panels um, sold today, are use silicon wafers, which are just essentially ingots that are grown, uh, big solid ingots that look like a large solid sausage almost, and they slice these thin little wafers off. They're only several millimeters thick. And they then go through an elaborate process of converting that wafer into an actual solar cell. And then those solar cells are, are used in most uh, solar panels like you see that you see, like I said, about eight out of every 10. Uh, that's considered first generation. Second generation solar technologies are, are essentially uh, thin films that use other kinds of solar absorbers, other kinds of materials to absorb and convert to sunlight. That's an area where we specialize in is in the thin film sector. And, and thin films traditionally don't offer the same kind of um, energy conversion and power production potential, but they do provide the ability to produce at a much lower cost. So there's a bit of a trade-off. You, it's like comparing a high-performance vehicle to a, a high-mileage vehicle. You get a performance variation where there's pros and cons in each one. And those are primarily the two areas. There's some future technologies based on polymers and organics uh, that are being developed, but those could easily be anywhere from five years to in, in, into an indefinite number of years um, on down the line before we start to see uh, actual commercial-grade product in those sectors. I see. I understand the sort of focus that you have is also trying to make use of an excess capacity in the hard disk drive manufacturing. Well, yeah. What, what we've done is last fall, we have an, uh, a couple of members of our scientific advisory board and our, our um, board directors <clears throat> have backgrounds from the hard disk drive industry. And the hard disk drive industry is, is an industry which I, I think most of the listeners would agree. They could think back 10, 15 years and they could remember what a memory or, or a hard disk drive cost back then and how, and how large the capacity was. And now they, they look to today and they realize that there's literally been an order of magnitude and in price reduction and, and quality increase. So the hard disk drive industry has done arguably one of the best jobs of commoditizing a technology, and that is, you know, reducing its manufacturing costs, improving um, production speeds and throughput, improving the quality, something that the solar industry, unfortunately, has been, been unable to do. In the same period of time, the solar industry if you go back 10, 15 years, you'll see, you know, laboratory-based efficiencies that are only a couple of percentage points below where they are today. So, so my point is, is that although there's been improvements in, in the performance of solar cells, 
there has not been the ability to transfer those performance improvements from the laboratory to the commercial market space. While conversely, hard disk drive industry has done a wonderful job of doing that. So we started noodling around the idea of, of using hard disk drive manufacturing technologies, which are similar. Uh, they use what's called deposition technologies to coat various different kinds of media to create a magnetic media um, surface to, to essentially create a memory device. And, and they use deposition technologies, which are widely used, uh, flat panel displays that you know many people have for your laptop or your home TV set at home. The shiny uh, foil-looking coating on a bag of potato chips is a deposition process. So um, performance coatings on your sunglasses, uh, windows, things like that. So the deposition industry is quite diverse. And the, the hard disk drive industry also uses deposition technologies to, deploy, to deposit these thin film layers. Well, we, uh, we looked at that and we realized, well, we can go ahead and adapt our solar manufacturing processes to these same systems and potentially leverage uh, their high rate production, their, their speed and throughput capacities, software programs, material handling, uh, uh, you name it, all kinds of, of, of different technologies that they've really um, virtually perfected. We can use those to potentially make solar cells, individual solar cells, which is something that's never been done with thin films before. Usually thin films are manufactured on large pieces of glass, three feet wide by uh, five feet or so long, and they do it all at one time, and they, they, they deposit this surface all at one time. And the process of doing that, what worked in the, in the laboratory in just small little squares or maybe four inches square, they now try to transfer that process to something that's many, many times larger, and they introduce a bunch of statistical anomalies that just create defects in the structure. And so in the laboratory, you're getting a 14% efficiency, and in your commercial solar module, you're maybe gaining 8 or 9% efficiency. And that's what I mentioned earlier. The solar industry has been done a poor job of transferring laboratory results to the commercial uh, environment. So using hard disk drive equipment, we thought, well, we'll just use individual solar cells, kind of like the silicon solar cells I, I talked about earlier, the, the silicon wafers that dominate the market. They're about five-inch square silicon wafers, and we're going to use a piece of stainless steel inside hard disk drive equipment and make individual thin film wafers. And doing that, we start with something that's much closer to the size of what's proven to already work in the laboratory and produce high efficiency results. We introduce as few variables as possible and then leverage all this high rate production equipment to just make boatloads of these solar cells on a per hour, per day, and per year basis. And so we think we can combine the high efficiencies with low cost through this manufacturing process. The strategy is more modular to string a bunch of these small units together and create a very efficient collecting device. Yes. You know, the, the thing with thin films is for years they've touted low cost, and part of that low cost has, has resulted from a significantly less amount of material is used. You know, that's why they call it thin film, essentially one one-hundredth the thickness of um, silicon wafer. And the materials themselves are less expensive, less of a commodity. They fluctuate less in the marketplace in terms of pricing. And this monolithic manufacturing. So you can imagine this big flat panel screen TV you have at home on, on the wall or somewhere or you've seen in a, in a building somewhere. That piece of glass, uh, which is a similar process, making uh, thin film solar cells is similar to making a flat panel display, is put in a machine. Maybe eight of those plates of glass go in at one time, and they deposit this coating on it monolithically. You know, intuition tells you, geez, if I make a lot more of something at one time, I potentially increase its commercial viability because I'm making so much more, my yield increases. The problem is, is the performance degrades. 
So there is this trade-off. I make more material, but it's not as efficient, doesn't produce electricity as efficiently as, as my laboratory results. So when we step back and just use the small area, we're saying, geez, it works in the, in the laboratory, so let's not change what works in the laboratory. Let's just figure out how to make more of these. And the result is essentially a thin film wafer, which is a virtual drop-in replacement, we believe, for silicon wafers. Uh, we believe it close to half the cost of silicon wafers. So there's a tremendous uh, market potential, we believe, for this kind of technology at replacing silicon technology. How do you think this would compete with other uh, forms of alternative energy power? Well, you know, I tend to be a bit biased because I'm so excited about what we're doing. But uh, when I look at it from more of, let's say, um, you know, uh, I, I take my Exxon X hat off and I look at it from a more practical position, I say, well, when you reduce the size of something and you go to a modular component that's maybe five inches square, you, you've done a couple of things. You, you've increased some costs because now you have to interconnect all these. You can't just, you know, you don't have a large monolithic structure. So there's a bit of a trade-off that's a negative. But conversely, you know, the benefits are that now you could design solar modules uh, to fit the size requirements of, of a particular application. You can make the modules two or three times larger than they are currently, so that every time uh, one is uh, picked up and installed by a, a group of installers, they're installing uh, maybe two, three, four times as much product as they were earlier, which reduces your handling, material, installation costs. So there's a tremendous market opportunity there. Also, you can integrate these into building materials because they're smaller. You can put three, four, or six of these on a, on a roofing tile, and they're flexible so that you can integrate into shapes and stuff like that. You can integrate them into glass facades or opaque, non-transparent facades of buildings. You can put them into consumer products, you know, on, on the lid of a Coleman lantern, you know, on the side of a radio. There's a multitude of applications that when you, you know, modularize the, um, the solar cell, you now open up a whole bunch of potential market opportunities that we think are very viable and very exciting. Do you think there's a boost now to uh, the adoption of these alternative energy uh, technologies in the current administration? Well, absolutely. The current administration absolutely is, is definitely uh, tr trying to adopt that because they realize that there's a tremendous amount of job, job growth potential there. I mean, you go back to the Man on the Moon program we had in the 60s. We're still reaping the benefits of, of the investment that the government uh, put into the private sector and all the technologies that, that, that uh, sprung from that program. And there's other similar type of programs. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, war machines tend to produce a lot of technology as, as well. When you look at this green jobs or, let's say, green machine, there's a lot of, of technological innovation that's going to create, and uh, the, the, you know, new jobs. There's the whole service infrastructure. As a matter of fact, I, I've been going to these solar shows since 2004, and when the last one I attended down in San Diego last year, um, one of the things I, I noted to my colleagues uh, within the industry that, that I thought was tremendously exciting was the tremendous growth of service infrastructure, the amount of people that were getting in the industry that sell product, that design installations, that's, that install, that service installations. That's a tremendous amount of infrastructure requirement, you know, the human resource infrastructure that's required that I think that this administration realizes is going to create a lot of jobs, not just short-term, but long-term jobs. Essentially, you know, wean us from uh, dependency on the use of, of dirty sources of fuel, you know, help us clean up our environment here. And America has led in technology proliferation for years, development proliferation for years. So I think this has a potential for tremendously uh, good things for us here on an export basis, you know, exporting uh, this technology to other areas around the planet, too, as we develop it here. How do you think actually the U.S. is competing with other countries who have had sort of more of an, a lead time in terms of the development of their alternative energy technologies? 
Well, a lot of other countries have been far more aggressive with subsidizing solar installation, more so than here in the U.S., which is unfortunate. At the same time, a lot of what these other countries have installed is somewhat older technology. So sometimes, you know, there's the old adage that the first to market isn't always the winner. could say that arguably, is, though we've allowed ourselves to, to lapse in terms of not being as aggressive as some other entities that have been, that's allowed for technological innovation to occur now as the government starts to make investments. It may, and I don't think this was by design, this is purely by coincidence, but it, we may ultimately benefit from the fact of maybe being a little bit later to the game, but now we benefit through uh, government subsidize of, of more advanced technologies, which have a, a shorter payback or, or longer service life. So it may come back and benefit us in the long run. Uh, well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we're running slightly out of time, uh, if you have some final words regarding net metering and your solar energy technology. Well, net metering is, is something that we're going to see grow and grow and grow. It's the concept was called distributed generation. Utilities are beginning to widely adopt that. Uh, Southern California Edison is going to be installing, I think, in excess of 200 megawatts of distributed generation on roofs where they literally rent roofs. So uh, whether it's done through net metering or distributed generation where the utility pays you to rent your roof to put solar panels on it, you're going to see a lot more of that coming around, but mostly because of the cost of, of of electrical transport, you know, it costs around three to four percent just uh, in terms of energy loss, just to transmit power from some distant location to, you know, your local uh, point of use. And so when they start producing and using it locally, costs go way down, way, way down. And so you're going to see that become more and more of a widespread uh, policy at the utility level, especially with the government subsidies that allow them to write off various different aspects of those investments. As far as our technology, you know, we're excited about that because as a technology that can produce higher efficiencies, you know, closer to uh, the laboratory efficiency. So if we can produce panels that produce anywhere from 12 to 15 percent, we can compete with silicon, and that makes it a very viable residential and commercial application. So we see our technologies fitting well in both the net metering and distributed generation sector as, as, it, as it's more wide, it becomes more widely adopted. All right. Well, it certainly sounds very fascinating and certainly seems like a very excellent uh, technology. Uh, Mr. Djokovic, I want to thank you very much for joining us today to talk about all the fascinating uh, developments going on over there at XSunX and Solar Energy Technologies. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye-bye. And you were just listening to Mr. Tom Djokovic discussing solar energy. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Sunrise, sunrise Looks like morning in your eyes But the clock's held 9.15 for hours Sunrise, sunrise Couldn't tempt us if it tried Cause the afternoon's already coming home And I said, who? And now it's time for this week's question of the week. And joining us today, oh, it's our very good and very wise friend, Bruce Lee. Bruce, how are you doing? 
honor is mine to meet you, Dr. Lee. Well, we're so amazed not only at your karate skills, but at your skills at chemistry. Yes, training hard I have, King electrons I will. And now, I kick it so high, it goes to higher energy level. And then it falls, and then, you know, it glows. The energy is released when you falls from the higher energy to lower energy, and then you lose the photon. Wow, is that what you call fluorescence? Yes, that is Kung Fu Kick, for essence. Wow. Enter the dragon. Ah, fight. Thanks a lot, Bruce. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.